Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature James Montgomery Boyce. Under Dr. Boyce's leadership and teaching of Christian beliefs, 10th Presbyterian Church became a model for ministry in America's northeastern inner cities, offering a range of classes, fellowship groups, and specialized outreach ministries to the physically sick, women in crisis, and the homeless. Over his lifetime, Dr. Boyce was a prodigious world traveler, spreading the gospel through his teachings. Today's message is Wickedness and Righteousness. tonight from the book of Proverbs, beginning in the 13th chapter with verse 9 and reading through verse 17. These Proverbs continue much as those in the first part of this chapter and the chapter before have done, a series of contrast between the way of wickedness and the way of righteousness. There's a special message for us, each one is a message for us, but a special one perhaps in the last verse that we're to read. It says, a wicked messenger falleth into mischief, but a faithful ambassador is health. Reminds us that we are ambassadors of the cross. We are to be faithful in our witness. To be unfaithful is to be wicked. Either not to give the message, which is a message of life to those that hear it, or to give it falsely. We have great responsibility in this area, but to give it faithfully as a faithful ambassador of Jesus Christ is health. I think of two ways in which it can be taken. It's certainly health for the one who hears and believes and responds. It's health in the fullest sense of that word, in the sense of salvation, which is one meaning of the root words for health. But then secondly, it's also health for the messenger. You want to be healthy in the fullest sense, fullest spiritual sense, will then fulfill the commission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you and go on from health to health and joy to joy and strength to strength. And if you want to be unhealthy spiritually, then keep to yourself what you've received by grace and fail to do what Jesus Christ has commanded you. God grant that it might be the former for each one of us. The light of the righteous rejoiceth, but the lamp of the wicked shall be put out. Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised his wisdom. Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Every prudent man dealeth with knowledge, but a fool layeth open his folly. A wicked messenger falleth into mischief, but a faithful ambassador is health. God will bless this reading to our hearts. This morning when I began the last of the official studies of John's Gospel, I began it with a question which I'm sometimes asked, namely how after studying the Gospel of John for more than eight years do you find anything new to say? 
I think I answered that by saying that when you study the Word of God carefully, you find rather than running out of things to say, the Word simply opens up an increasing measure before you, and you sense, as you do with no other piece of writing, that it really is inexhaustible. It's infinite in the same sense that the God who has given it is infinite. As I come to this evening's study, I think of another question I'm sometimes asked, and that is, have you learned anything from John's Gospel? I hope that question is usually asked in the right way, not by people who wonder, goodness, has he learned anything from John's Gospel? He sounds the same way at the end as he did at the beginning, no better at all. You would think in eight years there would have been some improvement. Well, sometimes I'm asked a question like that, and I've asked the question of myself because here at the end of a considerable investment of time and from my point of view a considerable investment of my career as a preacher, I really wonder what I have learned, what significantly has gripped me during these years of study. Now in a sense I've learned far more things than I could ever convey in this message. I began to ask how much of the material I've written on John, I really learned as I did it. I have to confess that I did not learn as much about John and what I've written as I did in the first sermons I preached here. When I came here over ten years ago, I began on the book of Philippians, and I can assure you that everything I preached from this pulpit on Philippians I was learning the week before I preached it. I had never treated any of those themes before. That's not been quite the case with John, I had done a great deal of work in graduate school, and yet as I began to work my way through the book, I would estimate that perhaps half of what I said, or half of what I've written, I had not really thought about in any significant sense, and perhaps had not even learned until I began the preparation for that particular sermon or series of sermons. So. If I'm talking along that line, it's really not possible to say in any short scope what I've learned in a study of the gospel. But when I give a title such as I have given this evening, what I have learned from John's gospel, I assure you understand that I'm meaning to talk in general terms of those significant areas of thought that gripped me as I worked my way through the 21 chapters of this book over an eight-year period. And what I'd like to do for my benefit and perhaps also for yours is suggest some of these things, just four of them, the four most important ones, and show how in some measure they've affected my ministry, and I think in some measure also the sensitivity and the ministry of this church and its congregation. Now the first of these lessons that I've learned is not at all difficult for me to pick out the obvious one in my own mind. I have discovered a new sense of the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, and particularly the sovereignty of God in all areas of salvation. This is often expressed in Reformed theology in the acrostic, the tulip, which stresses our hopeless depravity and sin, God's electing grace, his effectual call, and indeed his perseverance with his people so that none of those 
whom he calls to salvation are ever lost. I won't say that it was the case that I didn't believe these things before I started to study the gospel. That really wasn't true. I had been taught this by Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he had had a great influence upon me as well as by other writers. But it's as I got into the gospel and began to search Christ's teaching in particular that these themes really came home to me in a forceful way, not merely as something that I believed because I understood it to be true, but as something that from that point on actually controlled my deepest thinking and the way I went about preaching the gospel. Let me just share briefly how that happened. I began with the first chapter of John and worked my way through that and the second and the third and the fourth. And about the time I was getting into the fifth chapter of John, I was thinking ahead to what was coming in chapter six. Now, if you know John closely, you know that in chapter six, our Lord is speaking to his enemies. Our Lord always spoke most directly about election when he was speaking to his enemies. I don't know why that's true, but he did. And I knew as I looked ahead to that chapter that I was going to come to verses which would say things like this, no man can come to me except the Father who hath sent me draw him. And I knew that after that, chapter 10 was coming in which our Lord expounded these doctrines of grace in perhaps an even fuller way than he does in chapter 6. And I said, now I'm going to have to preach on these verses. How am I going to handle them? I believe it. But how do you preach that? If you're going to talk about election, how do you preach about election in a way that still makes it clear to people that they have a responsibility to respond to the gospel when it's preached? Well, those are questions I really hadn't answered at that time, but I knew a person who obviously had answered them because he was a great Calvinist and perhaps one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. Not Whitfield, though that would be true of him also, I knew very little of Whitfield's writings at the time, but someone a bit closer to us in history, namely Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I knew that he'd done preaching all over the Bible and must have preached on these passages on innumerable occasions. So I took the opportunity to go up to Princeton Theological Seminary where they had a whole set of Spurgeon's sermons, and I went through the volumes one at a time. There was no index available at that time. Since that time, Banner of Truth Trust has published one, but I went through these 60 or more volumes, one at a time, scanning down the table of contents of sermons for any sermons that dealt with the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. And there I found literally scores of sermons. In true academic fashion, I made a list of these. I compiled them. And then each week as I came to preach on those verses, I made sure that I had read what Spurgeon did. And I discovered a great thing. I discovered that far from the doctrines of grace making you ineffective as an evangelist, they actually made you effective as an evangelist, a powerful evangelist. Because I discovered this. If the salvation of men and women depends upon their ability to respond to the offer of the gospel, or if your effectiveness as an evangelist depends upon your ability to persuade them to come to Jesus Christ, as Savior, then who in their right mind would have the nerve to stand up and try to preach to anybody? That would mean that if you fail in the task, they would go to hell and you would be the one that would be responsible. Who in their right mind could possibly engage 
in that kind of a ministry. Or if you had enough nerve to try and do it, you'd do it with your knees knocking together so much you really would be ineffective. But I discovered it doesn't work that way. I've discovered that what happens is that you preach these truths as God has set them down in the Word. You do it as clearly, as articulately, as forcefully as you can. And as you do it, you know that God who gave those truths works through his word to bring men and women to faith in Christ. And so you become a vehicle, a messenger, a tool in the hands of Almighty God. Now that really does give you boldness and power as you preach. Something else happened about that time. We had been having here at Tenth Church in a rather informal way a meeting of young seminarians and young pastors in the Philadelphia area to discuss the doctrines of grace. Several of us realized we didn't know much about them, and we wanted to discuss them and their application to our society, and we met and we discussed this over a period of about a year. And after we had done this, different ones leading the discussion month by month, we came at last to a point where we said, we've really discussed these things intellectually enough, what we need to do is discuss how we can apply them in some practical way. So next month when we get together, let each one come in with a proposal of what he would like to see done with the truths we've been discussing. And one young man, Ray Lanning, who was here as one of our assistants at that time, came in with a proposal for a weekend conference to focus on the doctrines of grace, to be a conference on theology, and as a result of that proposal and a gift by a woman on the west coast of this country who had been a member of 10th Presbyterian Church, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology was launched. And that, as you know, has now grown from a rather small but nevertheless significant beginning here in Philadelphia the first year with about 350 people to locations all over the country this year having a total registration of over 2,000, closer to 2,500, and we're in anticipation of even an increase over that next year. So what we learned, and I'm simply saying what I have learned, has not only blessed me, it has also, I believe, blessed this congregation and other congregations and individuals in different places. Now secondly, I learned to appreciate not only the sovereignty of God in salvation, I also learned, I believe, to appreciate the grace and the love of God in salvation in a way that I hadn't learned to appreciate it previously. I think in order to communicate what I mean in this area, I have to suggest that the grace of God and the love of God to be understood in any measure must be seen against the dark background of human sin. I remember years ago reading an illustration that Donald Gray Barnhouse had included in one of his writings concerning a time when he was in Belgium and was interested in purchasing some of the famous lace that they make in Brussels. And he had gone into a shop where this lace was displayed and as he asked to see different patterns of the lace, all carefully wrought out in intricate detail. The salesperson there that was showing him the lace, first of all, got out a piece of black velvet and spread it upon the counter. And then with this 
beautiful soft black background to set off the pattern of the lace, he pulled out the lace and displayed it for the one who wanted to make a purchase. And Barnow says that is the way we see the grace of God. We see it against the blackness of human sin. Well, as you read this Gospel of John, that is everywhere apparent. We don't detect the hostility of the people of Christ's day to our Lord in the earliest chapters. But as soon as he got around in his teaching to something that countered their approach to things, this hostility began to emerge. Seen first of all in the matter of his attitude to the Sabbath. They were very legalistic. Religious people always tend to be legalistic. God tends to set us free. And here they were trying to impose a certain ethical code with all its do's and don'ts upon the people of the day. And our Lord simply disregarded all of these man-made accretions. Now, he didn't disregard the law. The law is an expression of the holiness of God. He, more than they, upheld God's holiness as it's expressed in the law. But he did do away with this legalism or this legalistic attitude, and of course they hated him for it. And then they did what organized religion always does. It organizes, and in this case they must have formed a committee. We would call it a lynch committee. It was a get-Jesus gang. And they got together and they said, look, he's upsetting things. What are we going to do to quiet this upstart? And they said, well, let's show him up. Let's ask him trick questions. And so they got together and worked up their trick questions, and then they went trotting off to the rabbi to say, oh, distinguished rabbi, would you please settle this slight problem that we have? Is it lawful for us? We wrestle with this all the time, we Jews. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, help us out. And our Lord answered it by showing that the coins they were carrying in their pocket were Caesar's coins, and therefore he deserved them if he asked for them. But what they had to do was give proper tribute to God, that is, in faithful worship, which they were not doing. Well, he was too much for them with that question. They came with another question. He proved to be too much for them in that question. This was the question that the Sadducees asked about the resurrection. He showed they could only ask that kind of a question because they were ignorant of the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. And after they'd asked all their questions and had been confounded, they went back and had the second meeting of their committee and said, he's much smarter than we thought. We're not going to get him this way. Let's set up a trap. And then they set up this devilish trap. John's is the only gospel that tells about it. They got a woman that they knew to be immoral or else one that was engaged in... Uh, marriage uh, a relationship, a sexual relationship outside of marriage, and they said, now we'll spy upon her and we'll get evidence of adultery or fornication, and then we'll come to Jesus and we'll say, now Moses in the law commanded that somebody who was guilty of something like this be stoned. But what sayest thou? And you see, in their own devilish way, they had really hit upon a problem. Because although they didn't respect him as God, which he claimed to be, or acknowledge his authority, he nevertheless was God, and one of the attributes of God is his holiness, and one of the things that God cannot do is excuse sin. And so here they had one who truly was a sinner, was guilty of sin not only in an abstract moral sense, but before the law of Moses, and they brought this one caught in sin 
to Jesus, who was God, and they said, what are you going to do about it? And in their own devilish way, they had hit upon the problem, which is the problem of all problems. How can God save one who is a sinner without disregarding his justice and his holiness? Our Lord didn't reveal the full answer to them then because he hadn't yet gone to the cross, and even if he had tried to reveal it, they wouldn't have understood it. But he exercised his prerogative, which is God's prerogative, to forgive the repentant on the basis of the sacrifice to come. And he forgave the woman, and he instructed her to sin no more, which is the instruction he lays upon all his people. And then he went to the cross to pay the price for her sin in order that, as Paul said, he might be both the just and the justifier of the sinner. You see what they had done? They had said, we hate God, we hate God's righteousness, and we hate this man who comes representing it. We will not have him to rule over us. Let's get rid of him at all costs. And they were willing to sacrifice this woman in order to get rid of Jesus. And when sin was at its worst, he emerges in his most glorious role as the one who came not to condemn, but to bring salvation. And he demonstrates his grace. There's only one point at which he does it to a fuller degree, and that is on the cross. Because when they were frustrated in their plans to get him by trick questions or to trap him through the case of the woman taken in adultery, They said, we're simply going to have to get him executed by a trial at which we will control the evidence. They were worried about how they were going to do it because on one occasion they had sent soldiers to take him and the soldiers came back and said, as soldiers, I suppose, have never done in the whole history of the human race, never man spake like this man. His very words turned them aside. They couldn't perform their function. And I suspect that the religious leaders of the day wondered if perhaps it might just be the case that Jesus was unarrestable. And then word came probably through Judas that he seemed to be contemplating death. He seemed to be speaking as if it was his destiny to die. And perhaps this would be the occasion when if they would arrest him, he just might submit to their wishes and they might be able to carry out their design. And they looked at their timetable and they were squeezed because the Passover was coming and they couldn't do these things on the Passover. And they had all of this matter of the legality of Jewish trials to get through. And besides that, there was the Roman trial, which did have to be effective in order for the death sentence to be carried out, which they did not have power to do at that time. And they carefully and quickly worked it all out. And they said, you know, I think if we rush it and bend the rules here and there and eliminate parts three and seven, that we just might possibly get it in. At any rate, they said, this is our chance, and this is what we'll do, and they even broke the law, which they were determined to uphold, in order to get rid of him. And what did our Lord do? The Lord said, you know, if I wanted to, I could go back where I came from. But he said, what if I did that? What then? There'd be no salvation. Everyone would go to hell. And so he submitted to their wishes, The lamb taken to the slaughter voluntarily giving his life even for people like that, people like us, that we might be saved. So I say it's against this black background of sin that we see the grace and the love of God most effectively. You know, I think this should have 
bearing upon us and our ministry and in our dealing with other people. We have, unfortunately, in the Church of Christ, a great tendency many times and in many circles to be condemnatory of other people. People fall into sin, often sexual sin, things that seem to be particularly bad. And Christians look at the one who has fallen, perhaps a Christian, and they say, oh, look at that terrible sin. We have to chastise this one. And often the person is broken under the sin and guilty because of the sin and seeking some kind of release. And what they really need is a demonstration of the grace and love of Jesus Christ and his people. And I think what I have learned is that this should characterize us as individuals. I trust it's been manifest in some of my counseling, which I do here week by week, where we have a desire not to condemn. Usually Christians know what's right. They don't always have to be told that. Sometimes they have to be reminded. But by the grace of God, an attitude that desires to restore, to get that one who has fallen out of the sin and back into fellowship and in a way that's glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ once again. Now thirdly, I noticed as I came toward the end of my studies of John that twice over in the gospel our Lord emphasizes our mission, which is to be patterned on his own. He said in his high priestly prayer, addressing himself to God the Father, as thou hast sent me into the world, so also have I sent them into the world. And then again in the 20th chapter, where he gives what is John's version of the Great Commission, he said, as thou hast, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And what has struck me in that, and the gospel as a whole has reinforced it, is that Jesus truly did go into the world. And furthermore, as he was giving his farewell discourses to his disciples just before he was being taken from them, he spoke not, we understand this clearly once we get this insight, not to isolate them from the world, not to give them directions how they might withdraw themselves from the world into a pure or esoteric or undefiled society, but how rather they might have the power of God within them as they go into the world. And the reason this has struck me so forcefully is that I believe in America we have had just the opposite in most evangelical Christianity. We've had a great tendency to withdraw from the world. We find it difficult, and indeed it is. We find it dangerous, and indeed sometimes it is. We find it unpleasant. We find it uncomfortable. We find it sacrificial, and indeed it is. And evangelical Christians have thought, if I can just perhaps build my little ghetto around me, whether that's my home, isolated with my material possessions so I don't have to mingle with those heathen out there, or whether it's my church, which is a pure church and we don't have any sinners in it, or whether it's my denomination, which is protected on all these fronts, or whatever it may be. We thought that if we just do that, somehow not only are we doing the work of God, but we're even better than those others who are out mingling with the world because we're purer. And that's not what Jesus said. That's not the way he talks in these discourses. What he says is, as the Father sent me into the world to rub shoulders with the world, to get dirty with the world, even so send I you into the world. 
And believe me, that means that you are sent to your neighborhood, wherever that may be. You are sent to your neighbor, wherever that may be. And as we here as a congregation live in the middle of this city, it most certainly means, whatever else it may mean, that we are sent to this city. And we are to be known here as the salt of the world and the light of the world. You see, we have a tendency, we can do it. We can have such a great missions program that we somehow glorify ourselves thinking that the gospel has gone forth from us into all the dark corners, and I'm not disparaging that for a moment, but we can do that and neglect the darkness that is right here in the city of Philadelphia. And you are not doing, I am not doing, the work that God has given us to do unless we have that sensitivity and do that. I think here at the church we've had a new awakening to that just in recent months. We have a commission of the session called the Neighborhood Commission that's begin, begun to explore ways in which we can do this more effectively, and some of those things have been done already. If you're interested, look in the new summer issue of Eternity Magazine, not the summer sampler issue, but the one that is now in the mails, and you'll find a section in the magazine where 25 new ideas for church outreach are listed, and number 22 or 21 in that list concerns some of the things that we're doing here in Philadelphia just this summer. I don't mean in any sense to pat ourselves on the back in that area because we don't deserve it yet, and perhaps never. But this is an area in which we have to work, and we want to ask God to show us how to do it effectively. I've quoted before, and I quoted again, those words of D.L. Moody, who said, if we win the cities, we will win America. But if we fail in the cities, they become a cesspool that will infect the entire land. That is what our cities are becoming. And who is to blame? And I say it, the churches are to blame. We have abandoned the cities. We have abandoned the people. We have gone where it's nice. And then we have write-in campaigns from the safety of our sanitary studies where we deplore the homosexuality and the prostitution and the abortion and all the other things we don't like but we abandoned long ago. Obviously, this is something that's spoken to me very personally and I trust will affect our ministry here in the years to come. Now, finally, and I say this much more briefly, as I've studied John, I have been struck with his great emphasis upon testimony, the testimony of Christian people to the lost. And by that I mean verbalized testimony, not merely living a Christ-like life, though if we don't do that, it undermines our testimony. That's absolutely necessary, but it's what Paul Little called pre-evangelism, but actually verbalized witness to God's grace in Jesus Christ, to the doctrines of Christianity. I find it all through John, beginning with the witness of John the Baptist, introduced as a formal witness right there at the beginning, carrying on through the witness of those who were touched by Christ to the woman of Samaria who went to those in her city and said, come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did, and carrying through right to the final chapters where God speaks to Peter and to John and to, says to them, I have a task for you to do. You're going to be my witnesses under the furthermost corner of the world, and in Peter's case, you're actually going to be a martyr as you carry forth this testimony. And John, he's going to do it for a long, long time. 
year after year, year after year, even to old age. You see how that emphasis is there, and the variety is there, and the intensity is there. And the point, of course, is that every one of us are to be witnesses as well. If it depended upon eloquence, then it would only be the job for a few, because we are not all eloquent. If it depended upon intellect, it would be the job for perhaps even less, because there are very, very few of us who have outstanding intellect. But that's not the way the task of evangelism, that's not the way the Great Commission is given. It is given to the whole church being sent to the whole world. We are to be spokesmen and spokeswomen for Jesus Christ. This is what we're told to do. And by God's grace, it's what we want to do in increasing measure. You know, it's a remarkable historical thing that the gospel of Christ, beginning in an obscure area of the ancient Roman world, spread within a generation so that there were Christian congregations literally in every major town of the empire. And even the pagans within two generations sat up and took notice and said, what is happening to us? The Christians seem to be taking over our lives. And the historians have looked at that and they've said, how come they didn't have seminaries? They didn't have prestigious universities? They didn't have elaborate mission programs. They weren't rich. They couldn't underwrite billions of dollars for outreach. They didn't have radio or newspapers or any of the things that we think are so essential to our evangelistic effort and yet, unfortunately, sometimes bear such little fruit. What did they have? How were they successful? And then they began to answer. Harnack, who wasn't really sympathetic to the evangelicals, says, nevertheless, at one point, there's no real mystery how they did it. It is simply that every Christian took it upon himself as his solemn God-given duty to be a spokesman for Christ. Informal missionaries is what they were. And that is what you and I are to be. God grant that we may be as he empowers us through Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. We confess that there are many more truths that we've not even begun to see. We confess our blindness, our ignorance at that point, and I in particular confess that I only see in this study through a glass dimly. And yet, there is in what we do understand enough to keep us busy now and until Jesus Christ returns. Grant that we might not be preoccupied with what we do not understand, but with what we do understand, and grant that we might do it as faithful servants and stewards and ambassadors and missionaries of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.